Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is episode 209. You're listening to Human Factors Cast, and we're recording this live on June 10th. 2021. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I am joined across the internet waves by Mr. He's that way. Mr. Blake Armsdorf. <laughs> What's up, Nick? How's everything going today, man? Hey, man. Things are good. Things are good. It's a it's a Thursday. I'm excited to sit here and talk human factors with you. Um, let's get into some programming notes really quick. Just to follow up to last week, uh, please do check out our deep dive on how workspace culture affects our behavior with respect to sickness presenteeism. We had a nice conversation last week, Blake and I, about this, but now we have the deep dive with all the science and stuff to back it up. So uh, go check it out on our blog. We'll put a link down below in the description for you. Um, and just as a quick reminder, we have opened up the Digital Media Lab here over at Human Factors Cast. There has been quite a lot of interest. I'm actually really excited about the folks we brought on board. Um, and there's only a few spots left in the lab. So if that is something that you're interested in, please reach out to us. We're kind of all over. Uh, feel, you know, We're monitoring all of our channels. So please feel free to reach out anywhere you can find us. Best way is probably our contact form on our website. Um, but we'll get it anywhere, really. Um, like I said, just a couple spots left. So it's, it's again, a great opportunity for anyone looking to get involved in a lab, um, you know, looking for ex real world experience, looking to share your work, uh, do some research projects, or even if you're a designer or a coder working on a portfolio, it's, there's some opportunity for you there. Um, yeah. Anyway, check that out. Uh, but Blake, we know, we know why everyone's here, right? You know what? Absolutely. You know what they're here for? They are here for Human Factors News. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet. We look through all of our sources. We, colli we, col we collect those sources. We have our patrons <laughs> vote on them, and we bring it to you. This is all the things going on in the community, the field of human factors. This could be anything related to you know medical, uh, privacy, security. We got a little bit of everything in there this week. Blake, what is our story for this week? All right, so up this week, we've got technology to monitor mental well-being might be right at your fingertips. So to help patients manage their mental well wellness between appointments, researchers at Texas A&M University have developed a smart device-based electronic platform that can continuously monitor states of hyperarousal, which is one of the key signs of psychiatric distress. They have used this advanced technology that could actually help to read facial cues, analyze voice patterns, and integrate readings from built-in vital sign sensors on smartwatches to determine if a patient is indeed under stress. Furthermore, these researchers have noted that the technology could provide feedback and alert healthcare teams if there's an abrupt deterioration in a patient's mental health state. Mental health can vary quite rapidly and a lot of changes remain hidden from providers or counselors so this technology could help provide counselors with continuous access to patient variables and their status and it's likely to have a potential to be a life-saving implication being able to understand how somebody's doing how you can impact them in between sessions and overall just keep their mental health up so, Nick, this is pretty incredible, and I know a long time ago we talked about some similar technology here, but there seems like there's a lot more computing power going on in this particular solution. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what that story was that we talked about. I feel like it was some sort of algorithm behind the scenes where 
uh, it, it looked at your app usage or something and it kind of consolidated all that stuff. It looked like your battery life in your phone and, you know, how much time you spend on each app and it kind of consolidated that information. Uh, but this seems like it's a little bit different in the sense that it is pulling from other sources. So it's looking at things like your heart rate monitor. It's looking at your Fitbit. It's bringing in all this data, consolidating it and um, throwing it through a machine learning algorithm that then uh, brings forward some sort of picture on your mental state. I think this is really cool. Um, so, I mean, like, let's uh, really quick, let's just kind of describe what this study is, right? You want to you describe the study here, Blake? Or actually, Ab- let, me, let me hear your thoughts on this, and then we talk about the study. How about that? Absolutely. So this is super exciting to me. I'm a big fan of wearables and, like, gathering more data about yourself and being able to, you know, use that in a passive manner to potentially help you. Cause I think this particular application, like it is definitely it's mental health based, but I could imagine, you know, leveraging stuff like your Fitbit or your smartwatch, whatever brand you kind of like you use could still be like, you know, gathering markers throughout the day to use things like call emergency services if you needed to, or even, you know, kind of give you a better estimate of like how you're doing throughout the day because i think nick the the thing that we had actually looked at was a, an application that was trying to you know give you different like pick-me-ups through your phone depending on like how you your phone usage throughout the day and it's predictive markers about how that might be m- meaning that you're feeling yeah and in this case we're taking you know a bunch of different potential variables including i guess facial cues in some cases and trying to understand how mental health is being impacted which this has a lot of potential impact for sure in that like it could help you between visits, if you will, and when things might not be going so great. Yeah, that's a good, great distinction. I'm looking back through some of our older episodes to see if I can find it. I am not finding it. But that was a, that, that's a great distinction, I think, that you make is that this one is, um, is certainly focusing more on uh, that intervention, right, and, and sort of um, – bringing it full circle to the people who might be able to intervene in your life, like the counselors or therapists that need that type of information and when to reach out to you, that type of thing. So, um, I mean, let's, let's talk about what data we're gathering here, right? Cause I think, uh, we, we want to look at face or, or I guess this thing is looking at facial recognition, voice recognition applications, um, and sensors already built into your smartwatches. So this is using the devices that are already uh, part of your life, presumably, if you use them. And um, it's it's basically, um, you know, it's looking at things like heart rate, too. It's bringing in all these variables. Uh, and and I, I guess it doesn't, you know, pull in things from the phone is, is what I'm understanding there. It's already, it's just using things that you're already gathering data on. Um, using these devices and potentially gathering other things too, if if possible, right? Like, not all these devices have facial and voice recognition. Um, they do have, you know, some have like virtual assistants built in. Um, that it could collect data on your voice and like things like tone or things like that. I don't, I don't know. Um, but anyway, the the idea here is that once these are trained, the algorithms. Um, can monitor and and look at readings coming from these sensors and uh, these other applications basically to determine if uh, help is needed. Let's just say that, right? 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. So actually, I was going to ask you, is it cool if we go through the use case of kind of like where this comes from and then talk a little bit about the intervention of the technology itself? Yeah, please do. All right. So check this out. So this is kind of really the, the thought process that I think led to the development here. And then we can tease apart some of the, the cooler parts of the technology as well. So one thing to consider, like as a patient, potentially with anxiety disorder, let's say, uh, you may be ex- you could experience a stressful life event that may trigger some you know extreme irritabil- irritability or any kind of other related symptoms that would require immediate medical attention. But let's say that you're between you know mental health appointments or going to see a psychiatrist or your psychologist. So in this particular case, uh, you're if you're not going to like see somebody within the next 24 hours, you may be left to your own devices and not know that it, the best option is to go to the hospital or go talk to somebody. And without something like this that can, like, deal with people and help them while they're, you know, in between, like, seeing doctors or in between doing those subjective assessments while they're in the doctor's office uh, to, to, like, give a little bit of a metrics about how they were feeling while they were, you know, pursuing treatment outside of the doctor's office prior, it's really hard to, you know, one, keep track of how people actually feel outside of the sessions they have with a professional so it's it's a little bit less data for them but something like this platform which is really focusing on like nick said it's taking existing wearable technology which it it sounds like it has the potential just to leverage whatever you're either allowing it to have access to or that you do have access to so if it's just heart rate variability or if it goes all the way through the gamut of force face recognition um but the real thing that it seems like they're they're kind of measuring here with all of these different potential sensors is just hyperarousal. And so that's really what's what's giving you the per, the markers like through software into your voice and all and your heart rate variability that could mean that you might be experiencing some kind of traumatic event outside of a doctor's office. Um, so that's really the 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 big thing here is like it's it's a it's providing a technology solution when with with already existing and like kind of widely used tech and then providing healthcare professionals with the capability to potentially help you when you're maybe not going to see them or like just in a time when you're having kind of a crisis. Yeah, I do I do want to touch on a couple of things, right? So I think the key here is that's that's a great use case and um I I want to talk about what this might actually look like, right? So if there's there's correlation between your physiological response and mental well-being is is kind of what is uh being um alluded to here right there there is a correlation between some of these things and so you know you can uh determine that you know if somebody has an elevated heart rate and maybe they're um i don't know maybe they're not taking a whole lot of steps they could either be watching a horror movie or they could be experiencing like uh, anxiety attack or something like that. And the idea behind this algorithm is to train it to know when you're watching a horror movie versus when you're having an anxiety attack or when you are, uh, you know, like let's say somebody who needs anger management might be having a rage fit. And the application here is that in those states where you are, let's say, mentally um, compromised, not the right word, but like you need some sort of intervention. I can very much imagine a situation where these wearables are on your wrist. And so it's like, you know, as you're having these episodes, be they uh, manic, depressive, uh, anger, anxiety, any of these uh, sort of ailments, 
if you want to call them that, right? As you're having these, your your um your your watch might be able to go, "Hey, uh have you have you done your mindfulness exercise today?" And it's like that's almost like a subtle reminder that like your device has picked up on the fact that you are in an altered state from normal and you need to do something about it. There are, we can talk about like what those messages look like because that's a whole other human factors issue. How do you intervene? Um, you know, they're, they're saying here in cases where, uh, you are already seeing somebody for mental health. Um, then, you know, that might warrant a call from your professional and say, Hey, how you doing? I'm just calling to check in. Right. The Absolutely, other, yeah. The other part of it is, well, if your if your mental health professional is busy or with another client or something, how do you then intervene by using like push notifications to somebody, right? There's a whole messaging about that that's like how do you present some information without making the problem worse? Um and like is there a whole another machine learning thing around that that will then determine what's a more effective message for certain types of people? And once you meet a profile marker, then it can assign those types of push notifications to you. Anyway, I'm talking about the application here, but uh, I think there's a lot of exciting things about this um, because it's using existing data that's already there, making that correlation to some mental health um issues going on and then uh you know kind of uh bringing it all together and sort of trying to intervene i i love this story by the way and and one thing (laughs) really quick i should mention this um this research was done by a friend of the show friend of the podcast uh farzan sasan gohar and if you haven't already elise did a fantastic interview i actually went and listened to it again earlier today um from uh, healthcare symposium in 2019. So it, it's a it's a really great listen. You know, he talks about some of his research threads. Uh, he talks about things like telehealth systems and talks about continuous data monitoring and how it relates to predictive medicine. So very kind of foreshadowing of this article, and it was really fun to kind of listen to that and know what was coming down the line. Um, it's, so it's an excellent companion piece to the story. Uh, I will put the link uh, down below in, or I guess in the description of this episode or wherever you're at. So please do go check that out too. Uh, Blake, over to you. Um, wh- what do you think about just the application bit? So like going actually back to the the something you brought up about the interview right in that's the telehealth aspect of it so i the thing about this application is that i i think it's getting us closer and closer to creating an entire ecosystem that helps people deal with their own mental health when they can't always be you know accessibly meeting with you know a psychiatrist or psychologist in that like like you said you could potentially like if um if you're getting, you know, precursor markers. So the the benefit here of ML is that it can start to learn behaviors over time and understand and interpret data, but it also could start even getting a little bit more a little bit smarter, right? So in understanding when you're kind of in a precursor stage before like meeting full hyper arousal over from trends over time. And in this case, maybe that means it starts suggesting like you go for a walk, you do exercise, you do the mindfulness, you know, app you have on your phone. Um, before you actually reach that state of like, okay, I'm in hyper arousal. But something interesting you brought up is when you start connecting them with um, 
healthcare professionals, what's the messaging look like? What's the push notification language that, you know, keeps people in the loop, but also makes them feel empowered that they could, that they're like actually trying to do something better for themselves and reach out. Well, one way around this too, in the instance that like maybe your healthcare provider is busy or things are just like, they're not gonna be able to like see you even, even that day. Well, telehealth could be another option where you're actually, if, if it's, if it's determined like by potentially the algorithm that this is like a really bad event, maybe they just connect you with somebody to kind of guide you through some potential steps or things that you might consider doing. Um, so again, it's, it's like this providing an entire ecosystem for you to deal with mental health through digital solutions, which is why the application part of it is so much fun because it's, it's just taking your own data and kind of learning a little bit about you. Yeah. I do want to talk about, um, some potential drawbacks to this, right? There's, um, uh, well, let's start with the easiest to talk about. So in terms of what this actually looks like, so this is an application that you install on your phone and you, the application then reads all the data, presumably from like Fitbit or what other, you know, Garmin or what other service that you're using, reads all that data and chugs the algorithm on your phone. And so right now it's done the algorithm is done locally on your phone, which means it eats a lot of your battery life. That's something that they bring up in the article. Um, and so because it's using a lot of battery life, they need to figure that out. You know, eventually it could be done on a, somewhere externally, like a server. You know, it pulls in all this data, yeah. sends it externally. That doesn't take a lot of power, brings it back in with the analysis. Um, you know, and there's the usability issues, of course. Uh, that, you know, prohibit patients from using their technology. So, like, you know, difficulty navigating in their application. You need to figure that out. Um, and then there's some more obscure uh, drawbacks to this as well. Like, well, how do you communicate what data this is gathering to people? How do you make sure that the people using this application feel safe, like their data is protected? Um, how, you know... Is it is I'm going to ask this to you, Blake, is this an invasion of privacy to you? If like so. So walking through this example, right, somebody willingly um, <laughs> installs this on their phone, this application, like let's say it hits the app store or whatever. They install it on their phone. They don't read the user end user license agreement. They hit I accept. Yeah. They go down. All their data is getting sent to a database somewhere. The machine learning algorithm chugs on it and uh, comes back and, and produces some interventions for them. Is this an invasion of privacy? Well, I think the messaging on about the application, how it works, would have to be very clear in how these kind of like how this data and how these notifications and suggestions are being created, um, which it may not be because it's not like a lot of user agreements are very you know upfront about what the technology is doing. Um, although I think I think it's become more commonplace that like data privacy sharing is you know more upfront. But in terms of is it a a violation of your privacy or not? It's hard to say because it's collecting data that's already being collected from potentially your smartwatch. Um, and so you're agreeing to that. And I would imagine if you if you wanted to use this service or this application eventually, um, then it wouldn't provide that much of a barrier to entry because the data is there. Now you're just using it in a different way. So from my perspective, I wouldn't feel like it was a breach of my own privacy, mainly because now this is kind of like twofold i guess mainly because i feel like i'm well enough informed by downloading the application and understanding potentially what it's doing that 
that's kind of what I'm signing up for. However, without having re without having read this article and maybe being like suggested that I use this app by my healthcare professional who probably who may or may not explain to me how it works or kind of like the the potential uh, repercussions in terms of holding on to my data. That's a that is a bit of a different story. Um, but from your perspective, Nick, I mean, do you feel like this is a breach of privacy in any way? I don't. Uh, I think the privacy breach would be like if uh, a company like Fitbit took your existing data without your knowledge and used it to feed it into this machine learning algorithm, even if you weren't a result of um, sort of, you know, even if you didn't get the intervention, you know, if they used it as kind of like a data set to help uh, standardize the other people who opted into this. Uh, I think that would be an invasion of privacy. I don't think this, you know, if you're opting into the application, it compares you against people, other people who opted in or agreed to share their data at the very least, then I think it's okay. Um, you know, the, the privacy is a whole other <laughs> conversation uh, when it comes to data and it's, we can't tackle it all in this episode, but man, I don't think this specific application is it. it the weirdness comes when you're using other people's data and they're unaware of what it's being used for. Um, yeah, I, in terms of, um, making people feel safe using this technology, I don't, I think messaging is important here again. You know, it's like, Hey, we're never going to, um, I don't know. We're never going to share your data with anyone that doesn't need it. But then there's also like, there's, there's the safety of your data, but then there's also the safety of your well being. Like, how do you know that the company that has this data eventually is going to do the right thing? I don't know. That's, I yeah. I mean, looking at the ethics of companies is, you know, really it feels impossible from a right. consumer perspective for sure and i i think one thing to consider about the trust side is maybe that comes down to how it's being suggested like if it's coming from a like a health professional that you know because at some level you got to partner with hospitals to do this yeah um and so that maybe that helps See, um, but also, if the design is seamless enough, you're not going to know what the technology is that's running behind it either. And that's what's scary, too, right? Because uh, maybe this is just my cynical mind going. But what I'm thinking of here is like, okay, this thing detects that I'm stressed because I'm going through a move right now. I'm going to throw you the most expensive Amazon ad I can find about moving boxes and put it in your feed somewhere. Um potential wow okay that's that's some serious like and, and I, I it's totally possible right like i think that is um more of the concern that i would have is the sharing of data with other things you know it's like we're going to share this data with amazon so they can provide to you <laughs> advertisements in the moment where you are most vulnerable to buy like that is uh, the scary part to me um I do want to talk about this triangulation of, of data here and what this actually means um, in the future, right? Like, I, you know, I, I think of uh, we're, we're going through the Marvel movies. We're watching Loki. Stick around for the post show if you want to hear spoilers on that. Um, <laughs> but you have like Jarvis and Iron Man, uh, you know, who's this AI assistant and he can pick up on things like 
Tony Stark's um, physiological response to certain things uh, in the universe. And, and, you know, often Jarvis will make snide comments about them and suggest, uh, you know, <laughs> gently that he doesn't fly at high altitude or something like that, you know. And, um, you know, there's we kind of talked about the nefarious applications, but sort of um, the way that this could be used in a variety of different uh, applications outside of just intervention for, um, you know, th- these uh, episodes, right? I think there's some interesting uh, applications there. We kind of talked about it with the um, with with the Amazon purchase and the artificial intelligence assistance. Anything else that you can think of in terms of like uh, applications outside of the intervention space? Yeah, so one thing that it kind of jumps to mind is, and I don't even know how easy this would be to do, because I, I'm kind of reading through how the triangulation is working, and the, the mental, or the premise here is that it's trying to use a bunch of different data markers to to avoid what Nick's kind of alluded to, like it starts, it suggests like maybe you're, maybe you're more stressed than you are based off of just one physiological marker. Um, but and you're not necessarily in a full hyper arousal state, but I could imagine that this would be like in a fitness solution, like really valuable. So understanding kind of where people are in terms of sitting on the spectrum of fatigue and being able to tailor workouts for them, like from your vir- virtual assistant by providing you with different information based off of how it's picking up your biometrics, how you sound, or even if you're using facial recognition, like how you look in the face. So I think this concept of triangulation can have a lot of benefit in terms of making things more personalized. And especially as we get like more and more in depth and more and more wearables are going to be on our bodies in different forms and fashions like this, this type of triangulation I think is going to be kind of key for you to be able to sense what's going on in your environment. Yeah. One thing I just thought of interactive media. Can you imagine if like there's a, um, (laughs) you know, you're, you're watching a movie at some point and it's an interactive movie. So it plays on pathways and it reacts to based on how your physiological state is at any given time or an aggregate of everyone in the room's physiological state. Like let's say you're watching something and it's like, one person is super freaked out and another person is totally fine. Well, it might, you know, based on machine learning profiles of those people, give something that calms one person down and riles up another person. And then it could even adapt on that to get both of them riled up and then bring it back down with all these intersecting pathways. That would be super cool. Like almost like customized, tailored content based on your physiological response. That's like way futuristic, but something I just thought of. Uh, any any other uh, closing thoughts on this one, Blake? This is just really cool, man. Like, I'm really, I'm just excited that there's there's this whole movement that it feels like around like mental health, both like just in general world awareness content that a lot of companies put out, but now, but uh, and of course like technology solutions that are trying to be built around it to help people kind of cope in the world that we do live in. So I just think it's a it's a great application, and I'm glad that we we're able to talk it through on the podcast. Yeah, I agree. Great story. And again, go check out that interview with Farzan uh, from Healthcare Symposium 2019. It's a great companion piece to this. Uh, So thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic. And thank you to our friends over at Texas A&M University for our news story this week. 
If you want to follow along, we do post the links to all of our original articles in our weekly recap blog uh, as we find them, as well as on our Slack and Discord. So go over there for more discussion. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, the Patreon. Uh, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons, and especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you, keep the lights running over here. We are uh, we are having trouble paying our electricity bill, and you are doing it for us. So thank you so much. Uh, I do. <laughs> Human Factors Minute uh, continues to chug along. Um, over the last month, we've we've seen uh, some pretty cool stories. Uh, or not stories. They're they're human factors minutes that we see pretty cool <laughs> topics here. I guess if you want to talk about uh, that way, uh, we've talked about HFE tag. If you don't know what that is, check it out. Environmental design, augmented cognition, Kanzi method, some fun stuff over there. Uh, anyway, yes. if you're if you're interested, um, you you know what, Blake? I this is like a almost show notes on the podcast, but Apple is um paying for uh these um. They're allowing you to do paid podcasts. I think I might throw Human Factors Minute up there. It'll be the same price as the Patreon. On Patreon, cool. you get other things like access to our weekly Q&As. You get uh, to choose the news. But if you want to just buy it on Apple, I guess you could do that too. So we might do it that way. Um, anyway, enough about Patreon and all that stuff. Uh, so let's go ahead and get into this next part of the show. That came from... It came from. Oh, every week that graphic is just so stupid. All right. <laughs> Let's get switch gears and get to it came from. Yes, this week, like I mentioned in the pre-show, we got our stuff handed to us on a silver platter tonight. This is the part of the show where we search all over the Internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. So we just mentioned Patreon. We just mentioned our honorary Human Factors cast, Michelle Tripp. Well, Michelle writes in. She says, I have a question. Should I get my PhD? I'll be finishing my master's soon, and I'm trying to decide if I need a PhD. Will it make me more successful in my human factors career? I've heard mixed answers from multiple people I've spoken to about this. Some say it's unnecessary, and others say it will make you the ultimate expert in your field. Uh, Blake, I'm going to add on. Uh, so, so there's like three levels here, right? There's master's, PhD, but I also want to back up and, and talk briefly about uh, what you can do with a uh, bachelor's in human factors or psychology. So I'm going to pass it over to you. What can you do with each level? How do you measure success? Those types of things. Go. Yeah. So this is not going to be an easy answer. 
And I'm afraid I'm going I'm to give po- unpopular opinions, but there's not a whole lot I can do but be myself and answer the question here. So in terms of like which degree makes sense, I th- I didn't really know about human factors, and I definitely didn't know that you could get an undergraduate degree um, anywhere near me when I was learning about psychology. So if I had gotten the opportunity to do that, I probably would have. And I don't know what I would have done from from there. I, it all depends on the what I had learned. Because I've talked about this on the show before. The master's program that I went to, it's it was invaluable. Like the methods teaching, what is everything that I do today? Um, it it basically is a foundation for my job. Uh, and even though like I do a lot more UX design and front end development now, like it's still like understanding those research insights and translating it. I couldn't have done it without my master's um, and the program itself. But I think one, I think the thing here that I'm getting hung up on that I don't really know how to, I guess, answer it is I'm not sure that it's going to guarantee you that you're going to be more successful no matter what level of degree you have. I think that level of success is going to be much more dependent on you. And I think it, I mean, you may learn more skills from a PhD program. You may get more skills from a master's program, but I think it depends on where you end up in your job. And if you like the the industry you're working in, the work that you're doing and you're seeing impact and you want to continue to grow and spread the word about the stuff that you do um, more so than it's going to be impacted by the degree that you have. Having said that, I'm you're coming to somebody who does not have a PhD. I don't know what it's like to go get a go get my PhD. I have my master's, and that's kind of where I'm at. Um, but I'm glad that you're hearing mixed answers because I that's really where I would what I would want you to be hearing because I I think it's ultimately up to you. And the question becomes like, why do you want to get your PhD, or why don't you, or do you want to go get some work experience and then see if like maybe getting a PhD is something that you want to do, depending on the industry you want to go into. And that's, that's, that's kind of the last thing I'll say on the topic is think about the industry and look at the landscape of, you know, what you're seeing out there. Because I know personally the, the places that I'm really interested in are in tech giants and a lot of people have PhDs and a lot of, you know, job postings will not require, but they will say it's an added bonus to have a PhD. Um, so that has made me kind of like think, oh, I don't know if I should have gotten my PhD or not, or is that something I should pursue now? Um, but anyway, I, 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 of course, I'm going to say one more thing. The other kind of last concept here is you, you, there's no like time limit for when you can go get your PhD. Um, so if, if you're interested in like just seeing what it's like to apply what you've learned, you can always go back to school. Um, or if you're just like super interested in a program, that's really where I would kind of jump in and say, yeah, let me get my PhD. Cause I'm interested in these ideas, these people to work with that kind of stuff. But Nick, tell us a little bit about your perspective here. So I am in a similar boat to you, Blake. I also have my master's. Uh, That is where my level of education is at. No PhD here. Um, However, I do want to talk just briefly about success. And um, it's, it's a weird metric. How do you measure success? How do you define success? Um, For me, it's do I have fun what I'm doing? with what I'm doing. Do I make enough money to support, you know, myself and my family financially? Um, and really do, do I have a network of people that I can rely on if something falls through? 
those are my metrics of success. Um, am I happy doing what I'm doing? Do I have enough money to support myself financially? Um, do I have a network of people? Uh, and, you know, I think I'm, I, I would consider myself successful by those standards. Um, I, I think everybody has their own levels of success, right? Do you want to be, do you want to attribute success to a certain position in the workforce? Do you want to become a director of, you know, research at a tech company? Do you want to just be a busy bee UX researcher? I say, I say that and it's not derogatory at all. It's just, do you want to be like a a mid-level UX researcher or do you want to direct the way something is going? And I think, that is also another way to define success. You can also talk about success in terms of money. You can attribute a certain financial value to that and measure success by that metric. Um, and so, you know, I, in terms of what each of these levels of degrees do for success, I think it largely depends on, damn it, it largely depends on what you want to measure success by, right? So let me just briefly talk about at least generally, this is general, uh, sort of, this is a generalization here, and this is by no means uh, like a definitive categorical bucketing of each of these degrees, but this is what I uh, have experienced out in the field for each of these degrees. You know, the types of jobs that you would get with a bachelor's might be like a junior UX role. You can work your way up. Um, You know, it's something where you're not going to be in complete control of the research. It's going to be more of a um, assistant position to begin with once you get out, right? Now at the master's level, you have a little bit more um, freedom with that. You might be like a, you might come out into like a mid-tier role where you might have some say in the direction of the way something is going. You might work at like a human factors research firm. You might do, um, you know, more, targeted human factors research uh, that is a little bit more broad. I would say you could probably specialize in some domain like defense or um, healthcare or something like that. Uh, But, you know, you're still not the top, right? And PhDs, they are the ones who are directing the research at these places. They are the ones that are um, bringing in the money for the company. They are the ones that are driving the um, projects. And I will say, you know, like the master's level, you might get like a, a project manager level um, that, you know, might happen after a couple years of work or depending on your experience. I'm just saying these are general buckets. Now, there's no reason why, you know, somebody who has their bachelor's couldn't work their way up and be director someday. Um, it's just if you have your PhD, you're more likely to get that type of position after getting it. It's just, I, I think of them generally as more or less pathways um, to that research. I, I, I don't know how else to say it. I think it, it really just depends on how you measure success. And that's kind of where I'm going to land on this is find out what is your measure of success determine which of these is most in line with that. You know, for me, I got success by getting my master's and calling it done. And my metrics of success may change someday. I may decide, yes, I want to be the one who directs the research. Um, And if I'm not getting that in other ways, and I might need to go back and get my PhD someday. And that's fine. Uh, But that's because my metric of success has changed. 
that's where I'm at. Um, I don't know. Any other closing thoughts on this one, Blake? No, I think that kind of wraps it up really good. I mean, ultimately it comes down to what do you really want to do in the human factors, breadth of stuff out in the world. And that, I think that will really help you kind of guide whether a PhD makes sense. But I mean, the, the best thing I think of all the advice here is what Nick has said, like write down what success means and kind of see what that, what that kind of pans out as for you. Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and get into this next one. This next one is from our discord by he who shall not be named uh, Lord Voldemort himself. Uh, let's see here. So he writes for anyone who might have any insight, how far behind will a distance program put me from an in-person program? Uh, I'm still active duty military, so I can't attend a full-time program now, but I get a stipend to help with the cost if I take classes while still active duty. If I pursue a master's from a distance program versus a traditional in-person program, will it affect my higher ability or mess with the actual education I receive, assuming I go to a reputable accredited program from a brick-and-mortar school that offers the program? Blake, let's talk about the differences between in-person programs and online courses uh, or online programs. Um, go. Yeah, the only way I can really talk about this is giving you a, a kind of my perspective on what I think is going to be the difference. And I know there are plenty of reputable programs that I've actually now recently heard of that are doing the kind of like distance masters. I know Embry-Riddle is one of them. Um, super reputable school in this particular case might be of a lot of interest to you because I know that this particular Discord member likes aviation. Um, and, you know, I I want to address the one part in here that I think is probably most important is will, will it change my higher ability if I'm doing it in person versus not? I don't think the, the like the degree that you get, I don't think it's going to say in person versus not. It's just going to say you're a, you have a master's and you've achieved this level of education. I think what is going to be different and will require probably a lot of proactivity is my guess is the, the networking side of it that really helps you kind of make a lot of those connections to get, you know, get that first job or, you know, get into a lab or be a part of different, you know, human factors style organizations like HFES as a student, that will be completely different. Now you're in an interesting situation though, because you're, you're already employed, you're active duty. Uh, so maybe that's not as big of a deal. The other thing that I would be a little bit concerned about, and this is, only my like take on it is it was invaluable to me to work in the lab that I worked in um, because it, it led to my first internship. It gave me my first set of leadership experience. Um, it let me apply the methodology. I was learning it as I was learning. Um, and, and, you know, it, it made, you know, countless connections and friends that I, I wouldn't have without the experience. And on top of that, it also led me to my mentor who I ended up doing my thesis under. So without that in-person experience, it was all centered around the work I was doing in addition to the learning. I'm not sure how that's going to pan out or how it works. Now, I know there's a lot of reputable schools out there with master's programs online. There has to be some way they're supplementing this because they still would, I would assume, still would have to make you do some kind of thesis work and work with a professor and maybe potentially contribute to a lab somehow or in some fashion, whether it's like writing or whatever it may be, doing data analysis from afar. 
So ultimately, I think you're going to get the same education, but the experience is going to be different in the applied, the, your applied experience of that knowledge is not necessarily going to be the same, or at least that, that would be my like biggest markers of difference from, you know, in-person versus traditional brick and mortar. But Nick, give us some of your thoughts here. Yeah, you know, I, I'm largely in the same boat as you, Blake. I think the main difference between the two is going to be the networking aspect. So I actually reached out to him separately and talked to him a little bit about this earlier. Uh, so forgive me if any of this is duplicate from what we talked about. But just just going through the questions, um, how far behind will a distance program put me from an in-person program? It kind of depends, like Blake said, on how proactive you would be. But in terms of the actual paper that you get that says you have a degree, not at all. Um, in terms of you being active duty military, now this is a great advantage to you. I think this gives you a lot of experience in a certain sector. So if you were to go into DOD work, you already, ha already have that massive knowledge that you can bring in, you know, from the perspective of a uh, previous user of a system. Uh, let's say you worked on flight controls or something like that. You know, you're, you could be used almost like an SME, a subject matter expert, that could then inform the design. You want to be careful with that uh, because systems change over time and you don't want to bring in sort of uh, antiquated ways of thinking about something uh, years down the line, right? Um, in terms of stipend, that is pretty big for some people. And so I would strongly consider maybe using that if you can. Uh, there are also options to transfer credits. So let's say you are taking this online version and, you know, your, your, um, your service ends and then you might want to switch over to a PhD program like we just talked about with Michelle's question, right? Kind of depends on your path. That stipend is going to be really great at least to get in and get your feet wet. You might want to try a couple classes. Um, while still active duty. In terms of um, distance versus traditional in-person program, let's break this down, right? You mentioned higher ability uh, or mess with ed actual education that you receive. So let's talk about higher ability. Uh, I think that you will be, it, it, it depends on what you do with it, right? Now, if you just do the program, don't get into any internships, don't get any of that real world experience, don't work in a lab even remotely, then it might not do as much for you. Um, you know, there there might be, uh, you, you might get less opportunities than you might, uh, like Blake said, you know, he got his first internship from working in a lab. I had a very similar experience where my internship was would not have happened if I wasn't at an in-person uh, program. And so I think... Having those connections, working in a lab with the professor of your choice, uh, working on projects that interest you, and then lastly, sort of having your professor be able to make those connections for you. I think that is huge, especially just getting into the field. Um, you know, the, having that introduction of like, hey, you know, I know so-and-so, and, -so, and uh, they, they might be a good fit for you. Why don't you give them an interview? That's huge. You know, getting the door open. Um, in terms of the actual education you receive, now there's been a ton of studies on you know whether or not remote working is as, or sorry, remote learning is as effective as in-person learning. Um, and I think with COVID, the way things hit, it's just really different now the way we all view it. And so there's still some research to be done on that perspective. 
I will say there's a, an undeniable effect that you have from being in person. Um, you know, you lock eyes with somebody else in a physical space uh, when they call on you, forces your fight or flight response to go, oh, yes, I need to dig up this answer right now or else I'm going to uh, be embarrassed. And then if you are embarrassed, then you go and research that so you don't be embarrassed next time. There's a whole social aspect of being in person that happens. In terms of the information that's um, being presented to you, I know in several cases it's the same a lot of the time. Um, they record the in-person sessions, put it up online, and you watch it later or you know, at your leisure or whatever. And, but you don't get that interaction. You can't ask questions in the moment and have them elaborate on it. You can ask them questions post hoc, but the context might not be there. You can say things like, hey, in class tonight, you mentioned this, that, the other thing. They're not in that mode anymore. They're in office hours mode. They're doing other stuff, but you know, a question might come in, and so they might answer it, but they might not answer it in the same way that they would have done in that context. Those are the major differences that I can see. Um, and so just in terms of content, you'll be fine, but the, the interaction bit adds a little bit more to it. If you think you can get beyond that, then that's, that's fine. Right. I think you'll be all right with distance learning. Anyway, that's, that's my two cents. Anything else to add to this one, Blake? No, I think that was a really great breakdown, Nick. And hopefully this helps like with some of the decision-making either way, you're, you're likely to end up with a very good education regardless of kind of whether you're doing it in person or, you know, from afar. All right. And now it's time for one more thing. This thing needs no introduction. It's just where Blake and I bring up one more thing. Blake, what's on your, your one more thing this week? Uh, so this week, I don't think I talk about this on the podcast very much, um, but I am doing in on Monday evenings, like from four to five, I'm doing portfolio and resume reviews to try and help people you know tighten up the stuff they're doing so they can go through the job application process so if that's something you find interesting or you need help either in the human factors realm or the ux realm or you just want somebody to talk to about career stuff um, i'm happy to do that i do that through adplist.org so all you have to do is create an account it's free you can book 30 to 15 to 30 minutes with me and we can go over your content um, so that's something I just wanted to throw out there. I don't know if I've even said that on the show before, uh, but that's that's kind of my one more thing. Yeah, and if you want a more personalized professional review, we do have that as a tier available on our Patreon. So 15 to 30 minutes with Blake or you know, check us out on there, and that helps the show financially. Anyway, my one more thing. Uh, let's see here. What, what do you want to hear about, Blake? We can go with any of these. I'm going to go with the first one, actually. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that I had a – mouse that really had some trouble uh with the buttons um the one you had to blow on to make it go <laughs> yeah that's the one uh that is now my son's mouse he has now a defunct keyboard and a defunct mouse and he oh, carries cool. them around and he's like a little office it's cute he's it's, it's adorable um anyway my new mouse is great uh except actually let me grab a little prop here so the old mouse you can see the difference in the buttons. Uh, well, you can't see the new mouse, but the old mouse here, uh, these buttons are very thin profile. They're like right next to the thing. Um, and, oh, yeah. And they're like old pushy buttons. They almost feel like uh, like squishy. They're, they're not mechanical, right? They're old pushy buttons. <laughs> on, I, can't, I can't bring up my new mouse high enough for you to see on there. Anyway, they're more raised than the other one. They, are, um, they protrude a little bit further. 
and um, they are more clicky. And it's a very different experience than I've been used to for the last seven years. So I'm still getting used to it, and I'm still clicking buttons accidentally. So I've now had to go and make different profiles for when I'm just you know, idling or doing regular stuff. There's a profile that disables all my buttons except for the back buttons, which I don't press very often, that shift it into a different mode. Um, oh, and so like that's you know, a trick. if I press eleven on this keypad, it shifts it into a different mode, um, and I can you know cycle through them by pressing that button or disable it by pressing another button. Thankfully, I had those buttons free, but I have to disable all my buttons because I accidentally press it all the time because I'm still getting used to this new input method. Uh, so anyway, that's that's my one more thing. Um, and uh, you know what? That's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the news story this week. You can hang out with us on our Slack or Discord. Uh, great discussion going on over there. Or you can follow our news blog to keep up with any of our uh, articles going out there. You can visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, there's a couple ways that you can help support the show you can leave us a five-star review that is absolutely free for you you can like subscribe uh follow do all that wherever you're watching or listening to this podcast that really helps the algorithm say yes they like it show it to other people um tell your friends about us that is something that is also free and helps people (laughs) discover the show we want to be more than just a podcast guys we're trying to become a resource for human factors professionals If you like what we do and our message, you can always support us financially on Patreon. I mentioned it a couple times. It is what keeps the lights on over here. It's what allows us to do fun things like Restream or even just host on our website or, you know, SoundCloud is our way of doing things, and that costs money too. So anyway, all that goes right back into the show. And always, uh, as always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Mr. Blake Arnstorff, thank you for hanging out with me on a Thursday night. I love chatting with you. Where can our listeners go and chat with you if they want to hear about uh, this ADPList.org? You guys can always find me across social media at Don't Panic UX, but also feel free to reach out me out to me in the Discord or in our Slack channel at Blake. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch Tuesdays at 1 Pacific. 1 p.m. Pacific, not 1 a.m. For office hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thank you all for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory. Because it's more than just common sense.